You're tuning in to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Professor Joe Phoenix, who has been writing and researching about sex, gender, and sexualities for nearly two decades. She has worked in some of the best universities in the UK and now calls the Open University home. Phoenix trained as a sociologist, but now works mainly within the discipline of criminology, struggling to understand how policy reforms that are often created in the name of doing good end up doing bad. I welcome Joe Phoenix to Savage Minds. I'm so happy to have you here, Joe, because you and others have put your footprint on this academic legal terrain that needed to happen. And you've been one of the people testing that ground. So we have the report out. Tell me your initial reactions when you read it. Well, I mean, before I even tell you my initial reactions, I have to say I am uh, an unwilling poster child (laughs) in this area. And when I say unwilling, I never set out to test these legal terrains ever. Uh, That was the last of my intention. All I wanted to do was do a bit of research about trans people in prisons. That was it. (laughs) So, you know, I found myself caught up in this. But, you know, having been caught up in it, when I saw the report on, I think it was Tuesday morning now, uh, I was absolutely jubilant. I I cannot even describe to you um, how happy I was about this. Um, And I was happy for the simple reason that it felt like after waiting for 18 months, having my, you know, uh, professionalism called into question, having, you know, being told that my physical presence in places made people feel unsafe, that my research was tantamount to hate, um, that that report was like this shining light coming through saying, well, no, actually there were things that went wrong and that should never have happened. So I was jubilant. But then of course, you know, as soon as you get that jubilance, you have that feeling of, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, these wrongs, these things that I've thought for the last 18 months about these wrongs that were committed to me, oh my goodness, they were real. And, and, and that created its own, you know, emotional and also mental and intellectual and professional dynamic that um, I'll be honest with you, Julian, I'm still sitting in the middle of that. So I'm still trying to make sense of this, this place that we have come to. I was personally relieved for you and Rosa because having one's reputation slurred with the likes of a transphobe and even worse, because a lot of people will say, what's that? Hate speech. Mm-hmm. These are perilous times, and they can not only do one's career over, they can cause great psychological harm. As I have learned from speaking to, I've spoken to dozens of people who've lost their work, been threatened by the loss of work, who've lost their housing, friends, family, et cetera, et cetera. And the toll psychologically is devastating. How did you cope with it all these months? (laughs) <laughs> I did. You don't know me very well. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I run between two entirely different selves. Uh, this is going to make me sound like I probably need counseling or therapy. Um, but uh, I have a very finely developed sense of justice and fair play. And when that gets offended, and, and when I say offended, I mean literally when, you know, when something has happened that runs contrary to that, uh, I get furious. So I have uh, spent quite a bit of the last 18 months 
feeling like that child in a room stamping the foot going, but this isn't fair, um, you know, and being very angry like that. And then I have also spent so much time, I can't tell you how much time just feeling alone and extremely isolated uh, and not wanted and not really being able to understand how a 23 year long career where I have an international reputation could be so easily sullied by people making spurious accusations that were both unfounded, I mean, you know, completely spurious, but also that were such a distortion of everything that I've worked for for two decades. So it's been, it's been, has it had a psychological toll? Yes, there's no way I can say that it hasn't. My partner has had to support me through some very grim times as have my friends and have a few colleagues. It's not been an easy ride. Tell us, for those listeners coming from outside the UK who are likely far less familiar with your case, tell us what happened. Yeah, certainly. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm a bit of a weird fish academically. I, I, I swim in three different waters, if you like, three different disciplines. I do social policy, sociology, and criminology. For the most part, the research that I'm... Um, you know, uh, known for uh, is authoring uh, what we might call both and analyses of contentious policy areas. Um, and so I've done a lot of work around prostitution, child sexual exploitation and youth justice. And in each of those areas, I've tended to say, well, it's not one thing or another, it's actually both. And our attempt to heal the problems often creates unintended and actually much worse um, uh, effects. So with all that in mind, when the Center for Criminology at the University of Essex invited me to speak to them in uh, September of 2019, I happily said, yes, they're a great center. I know a lot of the colleagues there. Um, and, and I felt quite frankly honored to be invited. Um, I gave them the, the choice of either having uh, a talk about um, child sexual exploitation, youth justice, or this new piece of research that I was involved in around trans prisoners, trans prisoner rights and prisons, which themselves are sex segregated and how everybody was grappling with and the complexities of bringing in self-identification policies, i.e. Uh, policies in which prisoners are placed according to the gender that they identify, rather than the sex segregated institutions that they are, i.e. being placed according to your legal sex. So um, they, they, they wanted the talk on trans prisoners and prison placement policy, and I was very happy about that. Anyway, uh, it got advertised in the September. In the October, I was off in uh, Canada doing some research about it. Um, and then when I came back in the November, there were various discussions about whether I would attend the Christmas party after the talk, as the talk was due to be given on December the 5th, I believe, possibly the 6th, um, I think December the 5th. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, thus we go on. And then in the morning, um, oh, let me just back up a little bit. Sometime around November, I contacted uh, my, my colleague at the Center for Criminology and said, just want to give you the heads up. This is a fairly politically controversial area. You might need to just be apprised of that. Anyway, we head towards December and on the morning that I was due to give the talk, um, I had a text message from one of the people at the Center of Criminology saying that somebody had picked up a lot of Twitter traffic from the night before 
Uh, in this Twitter traffic, uh, there were some academics, in, including one called Matt Lauder, uh, who started tweeting about the fact that a quote-unquote well-known transphobe, who was, quote, part of an anti-trans campaigning group, uh, was appearing on the campus uh, and that there needed to be some pushback um, because what I was going to be speaking about was almost necessarily transphobic, given that I am a quote-unquote well-known transphobe. Now that <laughs> Such a tautology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's great, isn't it? <laughs> and also, it's that fundamental mistake, isn't it, that people make. We are not what we do. You know, I, I write. I, you know, I, I write about prostitution sometimes. Doesn't mean I'm a prostitute. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, anyway, uh, we'll leave some Sex of the... Sex worker. The, um, yeah, sex worker. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Or, you know, however we want to call these things. Anyway, the point the point here is is um, a relatively simple one. Uh, what I saw on Twitter was uh, what a lot of people have experienced in the UK. And that's uh, that because we have dared to question the idea that, um, uh, you know, that sex based rights are in somehow intention as an in tension with uh, some of the propositions around trans rights that we are ipso facto by definition transphobic. Anyway, um, so the Twitter campaign started, students got involved. Um, by nine o'clock in the morning, uh, I was contacted saying things were beginning to get very out of control uh, at Essex in the sense that there was a mounting uh, Twitter campaign and student complaints and staff complaints that this quote-unquote well-known transphobe um, uh, was going to come to the university and do a hate talk. Uh, by about um, 11 o'clock, I started getting worried for myself um, because, you know, uh, we'd had examples already in England uh, where people had been subjected to noisy campaigns where urine had been thrown at them and indeed where they had been assaulted, maybe not on university campuses, but had happened elsewhere. Uh, and so I started asking the university for assurances that my safety and security uh, would be insured and also that the talk could go ahead, uh, you know, using the full kind of remit of academic freedom, a free and unfettered discussion. Um, by 11.30, um, the Center for Criminology uh, was very concerned that they could ensure any of that because students were beginning, were threatening to barricade the seminar room, thus prohibiting participants coming. Um, and also, a violent and profane poster was being circulated. Um, am I allowed to be profane on this show? Yeah, okay. So this poster apparently uh, was a cartoon character pointing a gun at the viewer uh, and the words, shut the fuck up turf, were superimposed over it. And next to it was a text of my so-called crimes, my transphobic crimes. Those crimes uh, amounted to signing a letter to the Sunday Times in which I questioned the approach of a particular campaigning organization when giving advice to universities. Um, that organization is called Stonewall. Um, and uh, also that I gave a talk for an organization called Women's Place UK, who uh, campaigns for sex-based rights under the Equal uh, Equalities Act 2010. 
Now, by the time that happened, I think even the university itself was getting a little bit worried. So it was agreed that my talk would be canceled slash postponed uh, until they could get the necessary security in place. That was on uh, the 5th. Uh, by the uh, end of that week, I was asked by the Department of Sociology, within which the Center for Criminology sits, um, I was asked if I would supply the text to my talk so that members of the department could, quote unquote, vet it for its political orthodoxy or its transphobia. Um, I declined that invitation, and I pointed out that that whole process is quite possibly illegal. Um, and it's certainly wrong, ethically, and wrong in terms of academic, um, you know, freedom. Uh, apparently, I was then informed that there would be a full departmental discussion uh, in which uh, members of the LGBT student society would say how unsafe they felt, would talk about the issues about having me on campus and why I was a problematic speaker. Um, I did not attend that. I did not provide my uh, talk. So I was, if you like, tried in abstentia. And the result of that departmental uh, discussion was that the invitation was permanently rescinded. And at one point I was told that my presence on the campus would never be welcome. So that's the run of the events. It sounds like a Clint Eastwood film. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I Get just out of town by sundown <laughs> or else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just wish I could twang better, you know, and have a smoking <laughs> gun there. But yeah, no, it was it was ludicrous. Uh, now, there, there's so many different ironies um, running through that week. The day that I was told I was not welcome on the campus of Essex and that the um, invitation to speak was permanently rescinded. I was on my way, quite literally, I was on my way to the London School of Economics to give a Mannheim seminar. These are relatively high status seminars. <laughs> so, you know, I, I sat there and thought, oh, okay, Essex doesn't want me. <laughs> the LSE does. So, you know, that's good. Well, it could be any institution, couldn't it, at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, it could. We've seen these scenes of deplatforming or no platforming all over the place, in and out of institutions, academia, in and out of the UK. Yeah. Now, we spoke earlier today about some of the reasons behind this. And you said something that I included in, in my latest piece, which I've now posted, but it was quite mm -hmm. beautiful. I was really glad uh, to have that discussion with you via email because it made me think a lot about something that we miss on the left, on the right, but uh, I'm on the left, so I'll talk about mm. myself. It's nuance. And you said something that I just found incredibly beautiful. I'm going to read this out. You said, I actually think Essex is being extremely brave, an independent review that confirms they broke the law and they haven't tried to bury it. They also offered apologies when they could have chosen to pay us off. And then you also added this you said the university staff weren't afraid of the executives, they were afraid of each other. 
And you and I spoke about Foucault earlier and power. Yes. I mean, this is a yes. very Foucauldian thing. This is where Quite. Marxists hate Foucault because as a leftist myself, and I love so much in most of Marxism, but I think there's something very facile about the construction of those of us without the reins of power have no power and those in the seats of power have it all. And Foucault yeah. says, no, hence the panopticon, we all are looking at each other. And you put it quite well to me. And it made me really think through the levels of nuance, both in the report itself and in the response from the university to that report. Can you elaborate a bit more your thoughts? I would be very happy to. So the report itself is very nuanced and I encourage all of your listeners to read it if, if they can. But uh, there was one point in um, the report where uh, Aqua Reindorf, the author, uh, comments on the culture of fear that had grown up in Essex. Now, when we hear words like culture of fear, we assume that it's a culture of being cowed, if you like, of people who are so utterly repressed that they're kind of holding their hands above their heads, waiting for some truncheon to come down and beat them on the head from on high. Um, and certainly, you know, you get a lot of people talking about that at universities. Um, but that is not what was happening. So let's return a little bit to the story that I told about the departmental meeting in which, you know, some, uh, I don't know if it was a trans student or if it was trans staff or exactly what, but there was somebody who came to talk about how unsafe they felt about me. Okay, that meeting, you have this, this individual who rightly or wrongly felt that way and they're pouring their heart out to this gathered group of academics. Um, and in that gathered group of academics, there are maybe one or two extremely vocal individuals supporting what the students or staff are saying about uh, the lack of safety because of me. Then you've got all of these others, they're listening to that. Now it was they who capitulated or voted, I don't know what you wanna call it, to having, uh, you know, having to, to breaking the law in effect and infringing my freedom of speech and curtailing academic freedom. Now, uh, that kind of, they're looking at each other. So that fear is born not by the VC or the university executive beating down on them saying, do things right, we have this wonderful trans policy. That fear uh, was bred in that room at that moment between all of those colleagues. And I said to you when we talked earlier, um, that I have a great deal of heartfelt empathy for many of the actors in this little tragedy. I feel desperately sorry uh, for the director of the Center of Criminology who found himself embroiled in a storm, not of his making, um, and largely that he didn't know anything about because it's not his field. I feel desperately sorry for the head of the Department of Sociology who had to chair that meeting. Um, I mean, can you imagine having to chair that meeting? And then I also feel quite desperately sorry for the university executive who suddenly found that within the space of three, four weeks between myself and Rosa Friedman, who is also mentioned in the review, uh, that twice laws were broken around academic freedom. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't want to be the vice chancellor that that happened. So going back to the beginning of that quote, I think Essex have been extraordinary in how they have handled this. There are other universities currently in the UK that are offering absolutely no support for their staff or their invited speakers who are being harassed, who are being bullied, 
who are being silenced, no platformed, um, or you know, just just being treated with censorious behavior and, and, and defamations. They're doing nothing. Now, um, it could be possible. I was thinking about this, you see, on Tuesday when the report came out. It's like, oh my goodness, if I was the VC, what would I have done? And then I would have thought, Oof, as a university, I might want to cover my own, if I can say it, cover my own ass in this, in this situation. How could I make this problem? I've broken the law. I've made us, you know, or not me, but my university has broken the law and a very fundamental law. Um, how could I make that go away? Well, I could just pay off the people. I could contact them, say, yeah, okay, let's sign a non-disclosure agreement and here you go. Here's a hundred thousand pounds or a thousand pounds or whatever, whatever the price of my soul would be in that situation. Um, you know, I could do that uh, or I could just bury the report so that it never saw the light of day. Um, and yet the university have done exactly the opposite. I think that's I think that's astonishing, and I really hope that they can be a sector leader at this point in helping us figure out how to heal the damage that's been done to our academic communities by you know how some academics, some activists, and some members of staff and students have legitimated the idea that some arguments are so profoundly true that even experts cannot question them. I have to agree with you. Our discussion earlier made me think a lot about how this could have gone south. It could have been yeah. superficially handled. Yeah. And this is holding effectively the institution to challenge what comes at their doorstep. They're not making a scapegoat out of Stonewall uniquely, although Stonewall, we'll get to them in a moment, has <laughs> a heavy hand in this. Yeah. I think it's important for everyone to take account of what they've allowed in their doors. And I've yeah. experienced this institutionally in London when I went to pick up my daughter one day from school. Uh, she was in the nursery school. And the teacher handed all the parents a leaflet of where to go and get job center training. And I was alarmed by this. And I said, why are you giving this out to parents? This has nothing to do with my child's education. Well, it's just we were asked to, and she was really kind about it. But I saw then how someone's mitzvah, their good deed, it was a lawyer offering free training for parents going to job centers. It sounds like a good thing superficially, but in the larger scheme, it's not. Because I do believe there should be a sacredness to children's educational spaces being about, surprise, surprise, children's education. And oh we're seeing a lot of this, what I call in the article concept creep that's come over from, I mean, it's coming from psychology, but it's also coming from cultural studies, largely in the humanities and in academia, where we're seeing moral values being embraced by institutions. So mm. we have the space today of the, not just the university, many public and private institutions have officers set to look out for, it's like the equalities officers or the FOI person, but there are people who are there to make sure that no one is misgendering someone, for instance. And that becomes an ideological position to hold, just as in the days of, let's say, the medieval period, people had to go towards a more 
clerical space for having their goodness approved. I think there's a danger today where we're seeing more and more of this. It's not lessening, it's, it's increasing, where more and more institutions are taking on the mandate of a spiritual doctor. They are the ones that will cleanse you and they will oversee that you are behaving correctly. It's a very strange thing to see simply because this is not coming from the right largely, this is coming from the left. And we saw this from the right, we can recognize it and laugh at it because it's often attached to Christianity and Puritanism, even racism and xenophobia, but this is something else. How yeah. is it that universities have allowed themselves to get into bed with agencies, NGOs, and then lobby groups like Stonewall that have all the packaging of benevolence and human rights and equality, but rip the packaging off and there's something else underneath. Oh, you want, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump into a bit of Foucault here for you. You wanna know what I, what I, how I explain it. It's really simple. There was a massive discursive change somewhere. I can't, I, you know, I haven't done the, the research on it, but it was somewhere around the 1990s, early 2000s, we stopped talking about anti-discrimination, right? So every institution, every organization has had some part of their HR department, right? We're not gonna talk about institutions. Let's talk about organizations because these are universities, you know, public sector organizations. They are first and foremost employers. And as employers, they've always had an HR department. Within those HR departments, there's always been somebody who's been responsible for ensuring that they um, that the organization uh, follows through with the letter of the law. And then after all of the anti-discrimination legislation that started coming through from you know the 1960s through to the 70s and 80s and 90s, for ensuring that that organization implemented those anti-discrimination laws correctly. There's a huge difference, I think, between um, doing what is necessary with an employment organization to ensure that discrimination is not happening to doing something around equality, inclusion, and diversity, or EDI, equality, equality, diversion, and inclusion, because that's taken it out of the realm of law. Um, and it's also taken all of those anti-discrimination or equality initiatives um, out of the realm of employment and it's placed them within the deeply, intensely personal realm of how you feel. Yeah, Do I feel included? Because of course, inclusion is not, I mean, you're an employee in the organization. You are by definition included. Um, do you follow what I mean? And, but yeah, so then to create a culture of inclusion and a culture where diversity, not discrimination is prided, uh, Sorry, let me rephrase that because that could be horribly misinterpreted. To, yeah, to create a, a culture in which we are trying to be anti-discriminatory is fundamentally different from a culture in which we are trying to celebrate diversion, uh, diversity rather. Please edit out some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So creating those cultures of diversity and inclusion then shift the onus from the organization um, away from thinking about how can they ensure that they are doing right by the law to how can they ensure that the employees feel good, right? And it's, it's also, you can trace um, the, the rise of 
um, questions around safety and security. I feel safe, I feel secure, I feel insecure. You can also trace that to those shifts between fighting for social justice and fighting for diversion and or diversity and uh, inclusion as well. Um, so I think there was a massive, I mean, I, you know, being very left, uh, I would be inclined to put this down to the neoliberal um, management of universities, and in particular, you know, the drive of governments to to create universities which um, uh, are are um, profit making, for lack of better words, and don't uh, draw on the public purse. Um, you know, and and how each of those universities then becomes a little center where they want to show just how good they are at equality, diversity, and inclusion. And that's where we come straight to the relationship with Stonewall. I'm just thinking about this. In terms of the equality, diversity, and inclusion, how would this square within the mandate, uh, let's say the John Major, Tony Blair era mandates of making universities profitable? Ah. Does that mean that more bodies are going through the door? I'll tell you my take on it. I'm asking you yeah. a question, but I'll just give you my little take here. Yeah, please. No, do. I've seen the same in the U.S. In the U.S., as you well know, is a, is a country that people pay through the gills for education and student loans there, unlike the U.K., are not forgivable should you never find adequate work or paying work, etc. Okay, mm -hmm. so I saw this teaching at New York University throughout the 1990s that the more there was a, I'll call it, pandering to the students mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. pandering came through well people like me I loved teaching and I meant every word I told my students I would spend copious numbers of hours with them and as an adjunct professor I was not paid for any of my office hours but I did it because I really believed in my profession and I believed in the kind of collaboration that teaching and higher education requires okay <laughs> what I saw though is that the way the departments and the colleges were framing academic discourse around course development and what they wanted us to produce in terms of course offerings, it had to sound hip. It had to ring with the times. It was almost like, what Tarantino film can I make my syllabus look like? Because this is what happened around, it was the early 90s, most definitely, when this started to hit. And the way that students were inscribed within these institutions, there was competition, especially in a city like New York, where they could go to any number of really good schools. And the whole CUNY system was quite cheap comparatively, especially compared to the new school, NYU and Columbia. This was all about attracting students who would feel like they were getting a better education, even if it was in name only. Mm -hmm. So... I saw that these kinds of studies proliferated at the same time, what was called then the star system, when yeah. NYU started getting Yves Bonfoy, excellent, uh, Judith Butler, Halberstam, Zizek, Derrida, etc., through their doors, paying six-digit figures for even one semester for these folks. Okay. Meanwhile, NYU did not offer adjunct professors health insurance, nor an affordable wage, but leave that as it is. It's, this is where we're talking about, you know, there's a real social injustice here. And on the other hand, they were able to successfully cover up all the social and political injustices towards those of us adjunct professors who weren't barely scraping mm -hmm. by with the students 
coming through the door, even going into deep debt student loan wise, if not coming from extremely wealthy families, NYU and Columbia have that heritage. And they were able to gloss over social issues entirely. Why pay your teaching cadre anything when you can tell students they're empowered and you can just throw another adjunct professor out the door and get a new one. And because again, in New York, there's loads of graduate students looking for work. That's how it started, where these courses started popping up. Now, again, love teaching. I did media studies, I did cultural studies, I had great syllabi, so I think, who knows? And <laughs> it, you know, my, my classes were fun and the students had to read and work a lot. But then I noticed I started to be asked to give less work give less work. So I was like, wait, am I a camp counselor? And I just need to get a whistle and a funny hat? Because mm. I started to feel like I was being asked to do something else than teach. And there was a facilitation of community that I was asked to do. Like, I called it Julie, the cruise director from the love boat, if you remember that. <laughs> yes, I was I like, do. I'm not Julie, the cruise director. You know, that's not my job here. But yes, yeah. that became the job. And I saw it when I took a tenure track position at the Université de Montréal. Similar things emerge, a completely different country with not very similar structures institutionally. There's a lot of differences between the two countries, but still there. The cruise director mode was there. And I'm like, what's with the cruise director mode? Mm. So that's my take. So the question I initially asked you is, what do you think is driving this? Uh, I think, I mean, that dynamic that you're talking about plays out in all sorts of different arenas. You were talking about it in relation to the shift from students as being, you know, learners, for lack of better words, to consumers. Um, and you were talking about the shift in academics, well, some academics from being, you know, just jobbing mild-mannered academics to being celebrities that bring stars and attention. Um, but that shift plays out as well in, in, in employment, in league tables, in all sorts. So that chasing for EDI credentials, you know, Stonewall champion, becomes part of what a university then can market itself as. So we have fantastic EDI policies. You know, if you're a trans person, come study with us, work with us, right? Um, if you're, uh, you know, a, a, a person from, you know, who's, a, who's British or ethnic minority, British and ethnic, blah, please edit that out, um, who is black and ethnic minority, um, come work with us because, of course, you know, one of the challenges that you have in the neoliberal university, for lack of better words, and particularly for managers and senior executives at the neoliberal university, is you have to square all those bloody circles, you know, and some of the circles you've got to square are showing that you don't employ just old white men. Um, you employ a whole range of people um, because, you know, universities are judged on these things when, when it comes time for like the, the research excellence framework. Uh, we've just gone through one, we've just submitted it. It's uh, the uh, research excellence framework 2021. Part of that you have to write is something called an environment statement. And in the environment statement, you have to show how your university or rather your subject area is adhering to and promoting equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, in other words, how you're not discriminating. Um, so, you know, uh, that kind of shift in universities from being communities of academics 
and students and administrators that had its problems. You know, let's not let's not pretend that the universities of the 60s and 70s were glorious places. You know, they weren't. They were places where women really struggled to get jobs, where, you know, even within my own discipline, sociology and criminology, where it was almost impossible to talk about, you know, the wholesale sexual violence against women or or any of these matters. So they weren't they weren't great places, but shifting those into a neoliberal context you suddenly see that some of these things we fought for in the 80s and 90s are no longer about achieving social justice or indeed equality in its true sense of the word, or indeed dealing with the profound material inequalities of the world in which we live. Instead, they become badges um, in the, the neoliberal academic marketplace. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, it's institutional virtue signaling, which, yeah, as quite. we know, one of my favorite writers on this topic of of managerialism is Adolf Fried, who points out mm. this problem and the left's abandon of material reality because it's far easier for the likes of Jeremy Corbyn to worry about pronouns over housing. Yeah. Anyone who's not a politician knows it, but politicians know it better than us. Yeah. So why worry about education and homelessness when you can just change your pronoun? Bizarrely, <laughs> though, you won't see what's her name, Ash? I'm a Marxist, damn it, Sarkar, saying, just identify as having a house. If you pose the same paradigms to the woke left, I don't think these people are at all left, honestly, but the woke no. left who talk the talk and never walk the walk. I, I saw so few articles in that publication over lockdown about renters and homelessness, but you were seeing very little pedal on the metal. So here we have... And I'm so appreciative of the talk we had earlier today because you really did make me think. Nuance is something I'm always banging on about because yes. we really do have to not only listen to the other side of the aisle, as left or right as some of us are, uh, I think it's important to listen to the right. I've been forcing myself to do that. These have been lovely discussions as well, I have to say, because I think there's a lot of straw man argumentation that goes on, which paradoxically, you and Rosa Friedman were victimized by because it's very yeah. easy for people to say you're guilty of a hate crime or hate speech. Then let's turn to the actual report, the wonderful report by Aqua Reindorf, where she points out in number 189, hate speech is not a legal concept and is not prohibited per se by UK law. Did not know that. Yeah. And I really was like, whoa, reading this report so beautifully written, mm. we are seeing that hate speech is being used to bang us all into submission on social media. Yeah. It's, you're reported, blocked hate speech, reporting for hate speech. Meanwhile, of course, what you and Rosa have said, and I've read and seen her words as well, <laughs> you can't even contort that into hate speech if you were 
on a series of hallucinogenic drugs. I mean, there is no hate speech there. So we're talking about the earth is round. The sun is the center of the universe. We're talking about scientific truisms to a large degree. Hmm. And here you are about to deliver a paper <laughs> on prison policy. Mm-hmm. So how did this get so twisted out of reality? Because I've had other people on this show who've had similar issues with their institutions, most notably mm-hmm. Mark Crispin Miller, who was held to account for some comments he made to a seminar on Zoom, of course, about mask mandates. And he asked the students to question always. It was a a course on propaganda, by the way. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the midst of his debacle in dealing with NYU, he found out that the underlying narrative had nothing to do with masks. It had to do with comments he made about gender ideology. The same with Donna Hughes, who's another expert in the trafficking of women and girls and prostitution at the University of Rhode Island. The same thing happened with her, where she was called a transphobe, but the subtext was, you don't think people are empowered by sex work. So we're seeing a lot of these multivalent narratives out there where one person is guilty of not one thought crime, but various crimes, just as you dare to suggest that men might not ought to be in prison with women. Yeah. Why is that so scandalous in 2021? Yeah, you wonder, don't you? I mean, I think I think there's so many things that you've said that kind of sparking off different sorts of ideas. Um, I think it's got to be said from my experience and just speaking about my experience here, um, I was never actually, and I'm going to use the language of um, the court, I was never actually tried for my crimes. Right. Um, If I was, if somebody had come into the room and listened to me and then, you know, held up some big, you know, neon sign going transphobe, transphobe, I could have probably lived with that. I might have argued with them about it. I might not have taken on 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 board. I might have just simply said, I think that you're wrong, but I could have lived with that Um, in this situation. the, the two things that I did, like I said, I, was to, I questioned the power of Stonewall um, in um, you know, promulgating uh, basically a no debate policy around trans issues. Uh, that was a public letter that I signed. So apparently if you are not for them, you are against them. And if you're against them, then you are a transphobe who will speak hate. Um, And then the next one was a Women's Place UK talk. And in that talk, all I did, I mean, you know, I did it over an hour because I'm an academic and I like to talk. Um, (laughs) But all I actually said was, hang on a second. You know, I support everybody's right to express themselves as they are. But you can't say that women and trans women are literally the same. You just can't say it. And if you do, then what you are doing is denying the nearly two centuries of research we have about you know, women who get in trouble with the criminal justice system being mostly victimized, that there's huge histories around that because you know, trans women don't have those same histories. So you know, to actually try and talk about the material realities and by material realities, I think I actually mean empirical realities that different categories of individuals are located differently within the social structure, which to me just sounds like good sociology, um, you know, or good social science, the starting point for it, for that to become hate was 
the bit where I think you go through the looking glass, quite literally through the looking glass. So, you know, um, I've pondered for 18 months because, you know, this has come at a great personal cost and a professional cost, all of this. There are, you know, people who, um, who I cannot debate with uh, because they say that what I'm going to say is, is too challenging for them. Now, on one level, I sit there and, and think, how did we get to a place where debate, i.e. the free and open exchange of ideas becomes unsafe, but more in an academic context and a social science context where you'd think that the ethics of my professionalism um, are based on the idea that I must be able to ask all questions in the name of science, right? I should put that in inverted commas because you know I'm, I'm no positivist, but in the name of knowledge production, all questions must be capable of being asked, right? How we answer them can become a point of political debate, but in the name of politics, you have to close the world down, don't you? And say, this is the way the world is. So I, I've wandered far and wide from where you started, um, but one of the things I've been thinking about for the last year and a half is how for many young academics particularly, uh, they've confused knowledge production with activism. And they've done that because they've seen the likes of Butler and others become celebrities. And they think the way to celebrity and the way to academic success is to have a quote unquote impact. And of course you have an impact, not by doing the hard graft of writing an article that only two people will ever read, um, but you know, by getting out there on Twitter um, by getting out there and saying, this is the way the world is, and by getting out there and exposing all of the injustices that there are. So I think that's how we go from, you know, a place where really uh, my job as a professional academic is to ask questions and create theories and have discussions to a place where my job isn't not me, but other people think their job as an academic is to tell everyone what the world is. Well, asking questions can certainly get us into trouble. I have to, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a few years ago, many years ago, actually, I think it's going on eight now. I, I was, well, I've been monstered and I've been harassed yeah. and death threatened, rape threatened. Oh, goodness. My daughter, when she was six months old, we had to leave the country. We left the UK for the Middle yeah. East for a few months. And okay. I tell you, when I was dealing with that, I came back to London and there was an interview with Judith Butler in the Trans Advocate. Now, the editor of the Trans Advocate, as my grandmother would say, is in love with me because he's <laughs> he was at the time constantly pressuring and pestering and harassing me on social media, calling me everything from turf and words that I can't even remember at this point, but a lot of nasty words. Yeah. And he did an interview with Judith Butler, allegedly. So I wrote mm. Judith Butler and I said, is this really you in the interview? Because I find it a bit, uh, I'm a bit shocked that you would have done an interview with someone who trolls women, calls them turf and you know, long story short, I got an email back from her that said, <laughs> answered some of my questions and said, what's a turf? No way. So that, that encapsulated the problem to me. If, yeah. if Judith Butler doesn't know, or didn't at the time, I'm sure she does today, but she didn't know around 2014 what a turf is then the issue is right there. There's a disconnect between the people on the ground and what people on the ground call the ivory tower, where yeah. I was really impressed by people in academia in the UK 
getting involved because that has not been the case in the US and has been less the case in Canada. Now in recent years, it's starting to happen in the US and some academics in Canada, I still get emails from them, they're terrified. But let's think to what tenure means in North America. It's a much more secure position oh, than yeah. even compared to the UK. In the payout, if that were to be dissolved legally, you'd still be fine. So at the other end of that spectrum, economically, there are a lot of people I've met. I spoke to Renee Gurley, who lost her job in New Zealand, and she's an important feminist. She was working in an art store, basically selling paintbrushes to people and other such materials. So this lobby has no full stop to where it will go. It will throw anyone out of their jobs and their housing. I've met people who, lots of people who've lost their housing yeah. over this issue. So the Reindorf report, the Reindorf report represents to me a real turning point because- oh, I hope so. As I said in my article today, more than you and Rosa, you weren't the true protagonist of this report. The real actor here is Stonewall. And it lays this out quite painfully, it makes recommendations, and it talks about the examples of harassment in the university's trans and non-binary staff policy. And I'm quoting here that might lend credence to the idea that these newspaper letters could amount to or lead to an unlawful harassment. This policy is founded on an erroneous understanding of the law, the policy is reviewed annually by Stonewall, and its incorrect summary of the law does not appear to have been picked up by them. Yikes. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's one of those mic drop moments. Exactly. And she says, in my view, the policy states the law as Stonewall would prefer it to be rather than the law as it is. To that extent, the policy is misleading. And I read the university's trans and non-binary staff policy. Uh, would it surprise you that they did not define non-binary? And as we all know, nobody can define non-binary because it literally is like, a, you know, those boxes of Crayola crayons. It's, it's aqua blue on Monday and it's fuchsia whatever on Thursday. We don't have a barometer for these words because the meaning is so amorphous. Well, also, sorry, I'm just going to jump in. It's not that it's just amorphous. We derive meaning from categories in comparison to other categories. And as soon as we have a comparison to another category, we have a binary. <laughs> That's another mic drop. Now you can just go and put that on a T-shirt. Well, that's... That's in yeah. line with my whole theory of trans, though, and the mm. cis-trans dichotomy that we have been thrown. That mm. the cis-trans thing is completely made up nonsense because the only people claiming to not align with their gender are the very people who align themselves with their, in quotes, gender. So, you know, <laughs> by virtue of being trans, who have corrected, again, in quotes, their gender, they are also cis. You cannot be Ouch. one without the other. So <laughs> yeah, there we go. Are, yeah, these are the contradictions. I mean, these are the, you know, these are the nuances. Uh, let's just come back a little bit to the Reindorf uh, review, though. And that fantastic, I, I have to tell you, when I read that paragraph, uh, when I first read the report, I literally jumped up and down and this is you know somebody i'm speaking to you having had back surgery only you know last week but i couldn't stop myself from jumping with joy when i read that because it had such a ring of truth 
to it. Such a ring of truth. And I think that last sentence about, you know, not the law as it is, but the law as they would like it to be um, is, 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 is the real thing. And, you know, I want to come back to some of the nuance here because <laughs> I'm going I'm to say something a little bit bizarre. I think Stonewall has been a huge actor in this field. Um, and I, I think that universities, not Essex, I'm not going to necessarily, because I think Essex is at a watershed moment. So let's just bracket Essex off for a bit. But other universities, um, you know, they have almost uh, outsourced, if you like, the responsibility for let's just call it EDI because that's the current language. They've like outsourced the responsibility of EDI to all these other organizations who give them advice and you know, look at their, their policies. And that way, what we can do when everything goes absolutely tits up like it has um, in you know, the case of me and Rosa and Essex and the report, as the report makes it evidently clear, it's all gone you know, completely to, to, you know, <laughs> to hell in a handbasket. Um, then, a university could, in this instance, point the finger at Stonewall, couldn't they? And go, you, you're the one. You gave us bad advice, so go away. You're at fault. We're going to sue you for any damages that we have to incur because of what we did to Joe and Rosa. True. And they could yeah. even win, given that they did pay a fee. I'm finding yeah. out how many police departments, NHS trusts, other organizations are paying money directly to Stonewall to be part of their program. Oh, here, I'm going to blow your mind here at this point. It's not just public sector organizations, it's governmental organizations. The Crown mm -hmm. Prosecution Service in the UK, um, you know, the the pro those people who prosecute hate crimes right yes. have based their policies on you know too blindly following stonewall um so you know and that's that's completely in contradiction to their their statutory mandates well i went through the equal treatment bench book today the yeah. guidance which judges refer to stonewall mm -hmm. is mentioned 27 times now i'll say that again because 27 times for the book that judges use to refer to in their judgments the organization that aqua reindorf has noted is misinterpreting mm -hmm. the law is funneling back that misinterpretation to the equal treatment bench book this deserves to be examined yesterday yeah um, I mean, there's a there's a really you know this is we've got some some huge lessons that are being learned. So then I was thinking about something else. So because you know I like a bit of nuance, don't I? So then I was thinking, but Stonewall for two decades it did such good. Do you know what I mean? It's like they Stonewall were they were a vanguard in the UK um, around not discriminating in, in an employment context against lesbians and uh, it used to just be lesbians and gay men, but you know, then it became lesbians, gay men and bisexuals and then it became the whole rainbow alphabet. Um, but they used to be a real force for good. And when I looked at employers and saw that they'd had Stonewall training or something like that, I thought, oh good, I can come out, yeah. But something happened, and it was the point at which they, they, they brought in a no discussion policy around trans rights. I think that was the biggest single tactical folly of any campaigning group ever, because at that point, they no longer represented their constituencies. And I'll put a plural there because, you know, anyone, I'm a lesbian, I've been out since 1979, right? 
And I can tell you that the 80s and the 90s were terribly fraught times between gay men and lesbians. So we know that all of us in this rainbow panoply of people um, haven't necessarily always fought on the same side, right? So at that point, Stonewall stopped representing its constituencies and decided to represent a single constituency. And of course, they started campaigning in their advice rather than giving legal sound advice. Now, I'm just gonna say one more thing here. Of course, it is the responsibility of any university, Essex included, to ensure that the advice they are given is lawful. So that whole question about outsourcing to um, Stonewall, I think that the, the good university, if you like, will be one that maybe doesn't even review their partnership with Stonewall, right? Let's just bracket that off, um, but actually recognizes that it followed illegal advice and then seeks to remedy that later on. Who knows what's gonna happen to Stonewall? I've heard that a lot of people are, are you know, that <laughs> the people are leaving Stonewall's partnership. I think this is a watershed moment for them. I hope they do. I'm not a big proponent of no platforming people from their jobs or whatnot, but this is not a job. This is an organization that is peddling absolute uh, homophobia, in my view. I think yeah. there's something really disdainful and vile about an organization telling women to suck female cock. Oh, and God, just get true. over it. Just get yeah. over it. And, yeah. you know, you talk about the 80s and 90s. I just interviewed last week Tim McFeely, who was the head of the DC HRC during yeah. the height of AIDS in the US. And we went over what were the issues then. And yeah. gay men uh, were dropping like flies in the major cities, including London, but in the US as well. And somehow the gears got changed in the 90s and towards the mid to late 90s. And yeah. there's a real problem of an organization doing its due diligence to support its said community, that community it's described in its mandate, and suddenly shifting without asking its own members if this yeah. is something they even want to be involved with. And the reason that this happened without any kind of consultation, no organization, to my knowledge, has done this. And I worked with yeah. a lot of gay and lesbian organizations in New York in the 90s. No one has asked the question, why wasn't that asked? Because I remember when I came back to New York in the late 90s, I had been out of the country for a year or two, and I thought, what's the T? I remember saying this, but what's the T? <laughs> Trans, transgender, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. what is that to do with us? Because I always compare this to like, you know, I'm an anthropologist. Are they gonna just add on stevedores tomorrow? Anthropologists and stevedores. <laughs> like, ask me, or, yeah. You know, give us the choice. And then you saw it in London. Remember Diva? Diva oh, was gosh, yes. trans central. <laughs> and I had a lot yeah. of prickly conversations with some lovely friends in London. I had to stop going to certain events in London as well because they became a hotbed of queerness and inciting with men in dresses, which fine. I have no problem with men who wear dresses. I really don't. But no. if I wanted to go out and have a night with other gay women, I would not choose to go to those events because I felt like I was yeah. being pandered to, you know, it reminded me of what Christians do in the deep South when they come to your door and offer you a Bible because you're at home at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I didn't yeah. want to be preached to. 
And I certainly no. wanted to have some spaces that I thought were mine to have. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I grew up, I cut my milk teeth on radical lesbian feminism from the uh, exclusionary radical lesbian feminism from the 1980s. I mean, I, I couldn't maintain it politically. You know, this is just my personal bio biography. I couldn't maintain it politically once I started getting involved in research around sex work, um, because suddenly you're invited into a world where those simplistic the simplistic ideas about the world that often accompanied radical lesbian feminism of, of the 80s got complicated and I, I began to understand nuance, if you like. But I, I am totally with you uh, about how, you know, the, how the genesis of this, genesis is the wrong word, but, you know, the, the, the track through history here of an organization set up to support um, uh, not identity minorities, but uh, people whose sexuality made them minoritized, i.e. people who were minoritized on the basis of who they wanted to have sex with, you know, or what type of body they wanted to have sex with. Because let's face it, you know, leaving, stripping the politics out. I mean, you'll know, you know, lesbians come in every variety of politics, but the one thing we all share in common is we want to have sex with other women, you know, and, and you know, what that means might change as, as our lives change, but that's really one of the baseline definitions, isn't it? Yes. I've been listening to the communards a lot lately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you remember that era. It had a meaning. And yeah. you pointed to this earlier, that anti-discrimination turned yeah. into, for the individual, a way of having their feelings catered to while the institution no longer had to do the work of previous anti-discrimination actions and left yeah. everything up to the recipient, the feeler, if you will. Yep. So yep. I feel empowered. I think we should have another trans day of visibility. I don't think 15 are enough this year. I think we should have <laughs> one and on leap year two. So, I don't understand what, how, no, but it's really crazy because yeah. I'm enjoying this with you, but I really hate this subject because I feel yeah. constantly like my brain is being melted. Like, why are we here talking about something that in no biology textbook written in the last 200 oh. years, yeah. men are not two women, millennia. women are not men. Yeah, well, <laughs> that too. I mean, we can go to the gallon one sex model and so forth. And there's a lot there because Thomas LeCure's book bears reading, even though a yeah. lot of feminists hate it. I think it does bear reading. The, yeah. the idea of sex, when the queer ideologists say, but sex is a fiction. Well, they're, they're wrong, actually. Now, they're not wrong in saying that there was a, there's a literature behind it in the sense that science has not always understood humans as sexually dimorphic. That is absolutely true. This is in the human history of mm. existence, relatively recent, but it's not relatively recent as in last year or a hundred years ago. Scientists and doctors have known that humans are sexually dimorphic for some time, because all you need to see is which sex is popping up the babies. It's not the penis yeah. doing that work. No, no. And also, you know, the other thing that I'd add in there, you tell a woman who has been a victim of rape uh, by a man that bodies don't matter and humans aren't sexually diamorphic. You know, just, just do that, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like, and in one fell swoop, you have swipe, you know, wiped away 50 years of feminist campaigning. 
you know, which is, which is where I come into all of this. And yeah, so, you know, coming back to those questions of inclusion and how the person feels, well, safety and security and offense, right? Feeling offended. So he, I'm just having a little mini rant with you, which I feel enabled and empowered to do because I have discovered the other day that I was a victim of egregious and illegal behavior. Right? So I am going to <laughs> You're going to work it. About, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to work it and I'm going to talk to you about my feelings for a second. I feel unsafe. Uh, and lack of security when people put a poster out with a gun on it saying shut the fuck up turf and my name right and i feel unsafe and deeply offended and deeply worried every time i hear about material inequalities in this world and i feel deeply offended and find it challenging to listen to the stories of people who have to suffer from economic privations or violence or the injustices of a, a of a, a class raced and aged criminal justice system so on one level this whole let's all feel inclusive is actually the perfect conservative counterfoil to make sure we do not actually talk about some of the real violences, and I use that word metaphorically, some of the real violences that are perpetrated within profoundly unequal societies. It's also the absolute platform on which complete individualism can thrive. And in doing that, that ends all possibilities for collectivist politics. That's my rant. Yes, and identity politics is the absolute of neoliberal rubbish. Identitarianism yeah. focuses on the hyper-atomization of individuals. There's no collective. How anyone, including Ash, I'm a Marxist, Emmett Sarkar, can say, but <laughs> this is a left-wing movement. No, but she maintains that trans is just so beyond our feeble female brains. I don't know. Oh. This is just bizarre to me how... We have come so far with technology, science. Here we are in the throes of a pandemic. The yeah. same people who are running off to get their vaccines will deny sexual dimorphism. That's a puzzle. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> now like, here's yeah. my idea. This is what I'd like to do with you, Joe. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think that you and I and others, maybe Rose would be into this as well, we should yeah. form a diversity champions group that people pay money into, and we yeah. school them about how to be tolerant of diverse opinions. <laughs> yeah, What's that? isn't that a great idea? No, I'm, I'm totally being yeah. facetious. Didn't, hey, didn't they once call that a university? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. Well, here's my, you know, call me Dean, Gene, uh, call me Gene Dixon. I don't know if you've read the National Enquirer <laughs> yes. in the US. Yeah, okay, yeah. you know that. Well, yeah. here's my, here's my future reading. And this is largely brought on by both identitarianism and the disgust that it has left with many working class students who struggle yeah. so much to get into university and they get there yeah. and they're, they find this kind of nonsense. Bullshit. Oh, and sorry. <laughs> absolute. No, it is bullshit. And then on the other hand, you've got the pandemic, which is wreaking havoc on everyone. Mm. I think that we're going to see fewer students going to university in the coming years. I think more and more students, and we see this, Google and Apple, they're hiring out of high school. A lot of people are going to say, why should I go into debt? to be a barista making flat whites. 
Yeah. Why don't I just do what I love? And, and, and so I say this as someone who I'm not teaching at the moment. I'm not in an institution. I do believe in higher education. I do believe in academia. But I think this is going to really put fire under the asses of provosts, rectors, and professors who preach wokery to mm. think again. And I don't mean in terms of a moral that the wicked, you know, witch of the West is coming for you, but in real, or, or you're going to lose your job. That too can happen. That can happen simply because of the pandemic, by the way. Uh, universities yeah. in the U.S. are falling. I yeah. think it's important because I think we really need to think about should the classroom, should the syllabus be a place for ideological training? Well, you know, you've you've hit the big money on the nail. Uh, I've just butchered that metaphor, but you know, you've hit the nail on the head, whatever it is, uh, because the the I've spent a lot of today talking to people, um, and I've spent a lot of today feeling uh, a, a profound sense of sorrow um, as a result of the report, and I've been trying to figure out why I feel so sorrowful, and it's not for myself. It's because this moment in history operates and can operate to delegitimize the university as an idea, um, you know. And in terms of practices, it's this moment in history and and what you know to use the woke career, what you know the the kind of the trans rights activists, the people who Rosa and I butted up against, you know. Ultimately, what they do is they delegitimize and 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 make possible universities to come under closer scrutiny and closer governance of from government itself and that does nobody any favors we cannot have knowledge producing institutions that are that are there to do the the bidding of governments you know we can't because that is just ideological training whether it's you know from identitarian politics or whether it becomes from the new version of of populists who now you know, kind of sit at the head of our governments. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's why I feel such sorrow um, that it came to this. And, I, and I'm so hoping that the Reindorf Review, because of its crystalline clarity, gives us a moment that we can actually get back to, oh God, I hate to say that, I'm going to say a phrase, oh my God, that we can get back to basics about what a university is, what we should be doing. And when we're teaching students, what we're doing when we teach them, you know, because uh, there are whole disciplines that require students to learn a knowledge base and learn ideas that are painful and disturbing and challenging and that they don't agree with. Um, and, and we've got to get back to a place where we can do that. And so I just, I've got a lot of hope for the Reindorf report and you know if you call me back in a year and say hey what happened joe um, i hope i'm not going to say to you all my hopes were dashed
Oh, 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 oh,